Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast. My name is Christian Allen, and I'm here with my co host and business partner. You know him as Rodney the Pod Zabrisky. Rod, what's up, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. And no surprise to anyone to hear this, but there's snow on the ground again here in Utah. Snow on the ground, Rod. I'm kind of tired of the snow on the ground. It, I, well, yes, except it's, we just need it so much. Okay, we need the water. fair enough. Rod, I don't think people care about the weather here in Utah. I'm going to be honest with you. So we're going to want to make on. sure they keep updated. Okay, okay, that's fair. We want people to like be able to visualize what's happening in Rod's world. Yeah, right? while they're sitting on the so, beach in, in Florida or something, right? Yeah, picture Rod and his house in Payson, Utah, with a foot of snow on the ground. Yeah. Okay, um, Rod, today we're going to do part two of our series, our two-part series, mm-hmm. Money Insights with Money Insights. We had a bunch of good questions this um, kind of this round, so we decided to break it up into two parts. And today we're going to get into the second half of our questions. So, Rod, we're going to start with a recorded question, and then we're going to go into some written questions, and then we're going to end with another recorded question. So that's our plan. Okay. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Okay, play it up for us, Rod. All right. So this first one. Do people say play it up? Let me try that again. Cue it up for us, Rod. Okay, here we go. I like the music. Hey, Rod and Christian, Chris Odegaard. My question is, or has to do with the 4% rule, which is the rule that the traditional financial planning community uses to advise retirees how much of their portfolio they can withdraw every year and not run out of money while they're still alive. So the 4% rule isn't working anymore. It might be the 3% rule or the 3.5% rule. So my question is, how is the traditional financial planning, you know, planners, how are they advising investors in terms of, you know, what to do now that they need so much more money at the start of their retirement if they're using a 3% rule instead of a 4% rule? Thanks a lot. Mm, All right. Rod, that's a good question. I'm going to leave that one to you. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And thank you so much for the question, Chris. Uh, so first of all, we're not obviously traditional financial planners, uh, but we've seen a lot of, of what they do as it relates specifically to this kind of what the 4% rule, et cetera. And maybe I can give a little bit of background on, on how it came to be the 4% rule and then how it crashed. So they have what they call Monte Carlo simulations uh, where basically what they do is they say, okay, you know, so-and-so is 65 years old and we're going to assume they live 30 years. If, uh, if we were to simulate them retiring with, with the nest egg that they're having now and with different amounts of, of income coming out, uh, simulate that at random dates in time, in, the, in history, and we'll do that a thousand times. So we'll pick, you know, December 3rd, 1964 and September 4th, 1982 or whatever as the starting point and play that out over 30 years and see what was their, uh, 
over the thousand times, what was their likelihood of success of having even a dollar left in their bank account or in, in their investment account uh, by the time they pass away 30 years later in this example. Okay. So the 4% rule came about because they, they ran that a whole bunch of times with a whole bunch of people and, you know, they might present it to them. They might say, Hey, here's what it looks like. If you take out 3%, here's 4%, here's 5%, here's 6%. And, um, you know, at 3%, your, your likelihood of success is 92% at 4% at 78% at 5%, it's 63% or whatever. Right. Um, and real ultimately the, the person gets to choose, right. If they're like, Hey, let's, let's roll the dice and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling lucky. Let's take 5%. Then they certainly could do that. Right. But I think what happened was uh, after having lots and lots of those conversations with people and running lots and lots of those Monte Carlo simulations, the 4% rule came about because that just seemed to be a, a place that most people felt comfortable settling in on. Okay. So Rod, couple thoughts here though. The Monte Carlo simulations have gotten worse over time. So yeah, I think yeah. that's a critical and important piece here. It's not like yeah. the ratios looked exactly the same today as they looked then. Yeah. Right. So when people were looking at it 25, 30 years ago, that 4% rule looked a lot higher. Probably it mm. looked, it had a much higher probability mm -hmm. than it does today. So yeah. that's just a thought as I, as I was no, listening and, to you. And you're exactly right. Because when you take, uh, let's just say between roughly, you know, 1950 to to the end of the nineties, uh, on average, the, the market would have done better for you. But then when we had that crazy decade between 2000 and 2009, and then you add that decade into, into the Monte Carlo simulations, now it all of a sudden didn't perform as well. Right. With, with that long of a period of time of, well, they call it the lost decade because you had roughly the same amount in your account at, in 2009 as you would have had in 2000, right? So, so that threw it off. So now getting back to, to Chris's question, ultimately advisors had to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to, to stick with the 4% rule or am I going to start recommending something different? And a lot of them moved to a three or three and a half percent. I've heard as little as like two and a half or 2.8 or something like that. Well, the challenge and, and really, I think the reason for Chris's question is, let's say that you, you thought, well, if I need to live off of whatever, $80,000 a year, I need $2 million saved up to start producing that 4%, which is $80,000 a year. Well, if you sit down with your planner at 65 and they say, well, it's no longer the 4%, it's now 3%, that 2 million, good job building up the 2 million, but all we can produce out of that is $60,000 of income. Well, now the person has to decide, am I going to stick with my plan and go with either the 60 or roll the dice and stick with the 80 or I'm going to keep working until I produce, have enough nest egg so that then I can still produce the 80,000. And then does inflation allow me at 80,000 at that new age to still produce the kind of living that I anticipate, anticipated creating for my retirement. So it's all a mess. So basically it's save more or spend less. Yeah. Right. Yeah, or or just take on more risk, or take on more risk. Yep. Um, and of course, Rob, what we would say is that you you uh, change the strategy entirely, right? Yeah. Because there's much much better ways than uh, to take income 
than doing it in, you know, taking the 4% rule and just kind of rolling the dice with it. Yeah. Okay. We, we don't, oh. we definitely don't agree with the whole approach of the, that three to 4% rule. So um, what we would say is create passive streams of income, replace your working income with, with passive income. So if you've been on that path and, and, or maybe you're still on that path and you're trying to figure out a way to, to do something different, then uh, check out all of all the, all the previous podcasts. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm being a little facetious there, but, um, but, but just, you know, it, it takes a little bit of a change of mindset and, and doing things in a different way to move from this whole idea of building a nest egg to instead creating streams of income, passive income to replace the active income. Excellent. Okay. Chris, thank you again for sending in this question. So that takes us to our next question, which comes from Marnie Moore. And she has a couple of them we're going to hit on. So first question she asks is, she says, I would like to know how to convert my 401k to a self-directed 401k so that I can be in charge of growing my retirement. Um, okay. So maybe I'll hit on that first. Well, actually, let me finish the question. We'll go back to that. And I'd like to know your thoughts on converting a self-directed IRA to a Roth IRA. What can I expect in the way of taxes and challenges? Okay, so first off, how to convert the 401k to a self-directed 401k. Um, I'm just trying to think logistically about this, Rod. But normally, in order to create a self-directed 401k, you have to have you have to have self-employed income, right? So assuming that that component exists, that there's some sort of business or 1099 income that's coming in, then it's really easy to just create a self-directed 401k. You, you do have to have a third-party administrator, so there's some fees and costs involved, but at the end of the day, it's relatively easy um, to hire somebody to do that. And then, of course, once you did that, you would do a transfer from the existing 401k like that's likely with your company or or maybe it's a former yeah if it's still a 401k it'd have to be with your company um you would just do a rollover from that 401k into the self-directed 401k and the other thing i would say is that you you'll want to talk to your current employer to make sure that they will allow you to take a 401k uh, or to do a 401k rollover if you're still working there so i'm not sure Marnie, where you're at from a work standpoint. So if, if, if it's a situation where you've left your employer already, then this is a non-issue. It'll be no big deal to transfer it over. If you're still with them, um, then that could be a little bit of a challenge. So with that being said, once that's happened, you pretty much have fluidity and flexibility to invest in anything and everything from that point moving forward. Okay, Rod, did I hit on everything? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll change the question a little bit to to, to help us kind of create a little more context. Like if, if it wasn't a self-directed IRA or if it wasn't self-directed 401k, if instead it was self-directed IRA, then you wouldn't have to be self-employed in that situation. Right. So you can do all right. of what you just said, create that self-directed, have a third party administrator and, but it would just be a self-directed IRA instead of self-directed 401k. Right. I guess I assumed in the question that you wanted the 401k. Yeah, no, I get it. So that yep. was my reason for answering that way. Yep. But but that's true. If you left your employer and you're just looking to have control over those assets, you could do a transfer into a self-directed IRA. If you want to have higher contribution um, ability and those kinds of things, 
that's why you would use the 401k. But of course, mm -hmm. in that situation, you'd have to have business income in order to do that. Okay. Okay. Good point. Um, okay. Second question she asks is, she says, and I would like to know your thoughts on converting self-directed IRA to a Roth IRA. What can I expect in the way of taxes and challenges? So this is basically what people refer to as a backdoor Roth, right? So, mm -hmm. so basically what ends up happening is, and, and this doesn't really matter whether it's self-directed or non-self-directed, that, that part's kind of irrelevant. Um, from a tax standpoint, uh, it's going to be the same regardless. So anyway, if you want to keep it in a self-directed Roth IRA, then you want to make sure that it's, that it's um, labeled, I guess, that way. But in terms of getting self-directed IRA to a Roth IRA, it's really just a matter of paying the tax and doing the appropriate admin on the back end. And of course, from a tax standpoint, you pay the income tax on it, but the government does give us the break of not paying the 10% penalty. So basically, I'm just taking that money, I'm paying whatever tax I would owe from, from my income tax, and then uh, now it's converted to Roth IRA. And of course, at that point, if it's in a self-directed Roth IRA, I can invest it in basically whatever types of investments I want to. Um, and the tax benefit is, of course, that it is no longer taxable from that point forward. Okay, Rod, was that clear as mud? Yeah, no, I think it, it was clear. And, and maybe I'll I'll kind of throw in, uh, we've talked to people who, in the self-directed IRA slash 401k world, um, they they liked it because they were able to take all that, all that money they had been setting aside in, in their qualified funds, kind of like... A, this is a good bridge from our previous question to to the tr from a traditional world to the alternative world because they have that money in the 401k they've already set it aside it's there right what are you going to do with it now well you can turn it into self-directed and and keep invest in, and now invest in alternative assets with those same funds uh, but then we run into people who did that and then they get to the retirement and they're like man now i just have a ton more like i did really well with my investing i'm really happy with that but now i have a ton of like all my assets are still in the qualified plan but if you can along the way do some of that converting so now you have still self-directed still investing in those assets but now it's on a roth side then maybe it'll feel a little better when you get there to retirement yeah and part of this is a philosophical thing as it relates to you know tax planning but basically if you're if you're having high income years, it's probably doesn't make a ton of sense to um, move money from traditional to Roth in that singular year because you're mm -hmm. going to pay the tax that you would pay in that year. So if I made a million dollars that year, like there's probably not a huge advantage to doing it that it at that time. Uh, now, if I'm just consistently at the, those higher income tax levels, then it just won't matter. And if you like the idea of having some sort of balance in retirement, then there can be, uh, there's probably some, you know, logic in continuing and doing some more converting. But again, those those are the kind the types of things to be thinking about when you're determining whether it makes sense to do a Roth conversion or not. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Excellent question, Marnie. Thank you so much for sending it in. Next, we have an email question from a great client of ours, Kelly Alanya. 
And Rod, this one's for you. I'm going to let you read it so that okay, people that's great. don't get tired of hearing my voice. No, that's great. Okay, so she says, for those of us who used our policy loans to invest in real estate syndications that don't cash flow and are no longer expecting a refinance return of capital due to rising interest rates, we may be facing longer holds on these investments and more interest payments on our policy loans as we wait for these investments to mature. Do you have any thoughts or bright side arguments for how to look at these circumstances? So... Uh, maybe just to expand on her question, uh, you know, a lot of people invest in syndications, use policy loans to do it through, through their investment optimizer policies and go into it. Ho hopefully everyone going into syndication realizes that there is some, can be some variability on, on when things happen. Usually they're thinking about, and a lot of the ones that I'm familiar with a three to five year timeline before it refinances and, and they're going in. Um, and Early last year, a lot of these companies, these syndicators were talking about expectations of refinancing some of their properties and, and maybe even selling some of the properties later in the year last year. But then everything got turned on its head when interest rates went up. All of a sudden, refinancing didn't make any sense anymore. Uh, there weren't as many buyers to go out and, and, and buy those properties that they were anticipating selling, et cetera, et cetera. So, so now people are kind of in a little bit of a bind because not only that, not only weren't the refinancing or the sales happening, but they also, a lot of them weren't able to pay out any distributions on the, uh, which they had been in previous years on those syndications. So now they're, not only didn't they get their, their capital back, but they also don't even have that distribution to use to pay the interest on their loan from their policy. And so now she's saying, well, you know, what, what do you, what do you do in these circumstances? So a couple of thoughts on this. And the first one is that's actually one of the really cool things about the flexibility that we have in the loans with the policy loans, because the interest, even though it comes due on your policy anniversary date each year, uh, it's not like a required, there are no penalties if you don't pay that right? As the interest will get capitalized into the loan and it'll carry forward. And so you'll experience some, some uh, compounding of that interest. So obviously that's the thing we, we try to not, we try to avoid that. We try to at least cover the interest, keep the interest simple. Um, but I guess my point is that that is an option without any kind of additional penalties or problems, right? Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, with a lot of investing that people are doing, uh, they may have other streams of income that are not just the syndications, but maybe they've invested in other things that, that are cash flowing. And that that's a kind of the benefit of having this as a single line of credit is if I, if I do have things that are cash flowing, uh, and I'm flowing that money into the policy anyway, well, that can make up for any lack of interest payments from the, the specific loans that I took for the syndications in a situation like this. So I guess what I'm saying is with multiple investments that can ease the burden on that. Uh, and then the third thing to say is if, if you're hearing me say this and you're like, ah, I just can't, I just can't stomach the, the idea of that compounding interest. Um, but you have cash, you know, sitting in the bank that you're, you wish you could go out and invest in things, but there aren't a lot of, of investment opportunities. Uh, then it wouldn't be a bad thing to take just some cash out of your bank account and slide that over to cover the interest, keep it from compounding on you. 
uh, during this time while while kind of you're in a, a cash crunch, so to speak, as, as it relates to the investments? Yeah, so you kind of described this, Rod, but the way I think about um, the investment optimizer strategy is kind of just that. It's like a, it's an overarching strategy. So it becomes difficult when it's isolated to like policy cash equals one specific investment, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we're exper- experiencing now can absolutely happen. Uh, but when we talk about like how we come up with the numbers to get it, it's usually, or, or the numbers that we might be contributing to the policy because we want to go and invest with that money. It's usually the amount of total money that we want to go and invest. So mm-hmm. if I'm trying to invest $250,000 a year into the alternative space, then that's what uh, could easily make sense to run through the policy to create the additional layer of profitability that we always talk about. Yeah. Um, so the question then is, how can I make that more of an overarching plan and make sure that I don't just have one singular investment connected to it? So again, what, what I would think about and try to do is use it more as an overarching plan, which means that you're going to have a syndication there, but you might have various other things too. And hopefully some of those things are cash flowing. Now, if that's not the case today, I think the best route is my best advice would be to just pay the interest out of pocket. Like you're, you're paying the interest anyway. Like it doesn't make a difference whether it's coming from the investment or from your pocket, it's still happening. Mm -hmm. And, and of course it's still creating the value of, um, basically arbitraging simple interest and compound interest. So from that standpoint, there's still value in coming up with that money out of pocket and doing it. Anyway, those are just kind of some some yeah. thoughts as, as you were going through that came to mind. I like it. Okay, thank you, Kelly. That's a really great question. And um, of course, it's incredibly relevant to uh, where we're at today. Yep. Okay, so this next question is an emailed question from Kalechi. So Kletchi, oh, how do I say Iwuji? Did I say his name right? I think so. Okay. Of all the strategies you have at your disposal, if one has a 10 to 20 year time horizon to reap investment returns, what's the best passive income strategy in your opinion? Purely from a passive standpoint. Okay. So this is really a tricky question um, because if you're talking about like from from very specifically, if we're talking about the investment optimizer um, versus the capital avalanche, well, in that situation, if I don't want to go and invest the money, the capital avalanche is a is a much better vehicle to do what you're talking about. Um, create a return, create long ta- uh, long term gains, interest, and eventual tax free income. However, however, over the last ten or fifteen years. There is no question that the best place you could have put your money is in like multifamily real estate, right? So if we look at the last 20 years, 10, well, let's see, since 2000, uh, probably since 2010, like over that 13 year time frame, there's really, from my perspective, no question that using multifamily real estate is probably the best place it could have been. Okay. Now, the problem or the challenge is we don't know what that looks like in the future. So I have a hard time maybe delineating and giving like a really hard answer, but as it relates to um, the capital avalanche specifically and the investment optimizer, 
Capital Avalanche is the vehicle that's going to create that long-term return because we're still using the same principles that we use in real estate, right? We're using leverage, which um, creates the additional value. And it allows the policy in combination with the bank to create that return for us, whereas the investment optimizer is really a pass-through vehicle to go and invest in other things for most people. Now, there are a lot of people that have a bunch of money sitting in there earning 5%, and that's great. But again, that's supposed to be more of a holding pond. So anyway, that's kind of my thoughts on that. Rod, do you have anything you want to add to Kalechi's question? Maybe just a word of caution in the nature of the question. And and we've we've had this type of question uh, since as long as we've been doing this, right? What's the best place, best thing to do? And then the kind of the follow on to that is often, okay, and then I'm going to do put all of my money into that. Well, the danger, there's obviously danger in that. And, and our last question from Kelly kind of illustrates that if, if our answer, you know, 10 years ago would have been uh, syndicated multifamily real estate and every, and someone put all of their money into that and they were counting on a continual flow of, of cash coming off of that. And then you hit a time like now, well, that's long-term it's okay. But if, if these kind of short bumps in the road cause you real problems, then, uh, well, I guess at the end of the day, you don't want to necessarily just say, Hey, I'm going to decide which one's the best and put everything into that one because there are just inherent risks that come with, with everything. We have to approach it, understanding those risks and maybe diversify across different opportunities to just kind of allay those risks. So Rod, that brings up a a good point. I just want to hit on really quick. So, and it's going to sound a little bit like a commercial, but basically if anyone's read on our website, right, we call ourselves the wealth building, the alternative wealth building firm for high income earners. And um, the reason I mentioned that is because for us, it's not about a singular individual strategy, right? Mm -hmm. We have our expertise. We have the place that, that we're really good in. But our, our goal is, and what we're creating is a place where people can come to learn about various different types of investments and get access to those investments. Mm-hmm. So in a situation like this, while our expertise are, is in life insurance-based strategies, our other expertise is in connecting people and facilitating other opportunities. So in this question, it is tricky because from a, from a just uh, what our expertise is and the life insurance-based strategies, the capital avalanche is the answer. But in terms of investments across the board, that one's just too hard to say because there's mm-hmm. a lot of really great places that we could put our money uh, that could outperform one or the other in a very passive way over the next decade, as an example. Yeah. Okay. Agree. Okay. Kletchy, great question. Thank you so much for sending it in. Our next question, Rod, is from Mark Rader, and he says... For those of us who are on the traditional cha- track, Rod, you're getting all these, all the retirement questions tonight, <laughs> today. Okay. So he says, for those of us who are on the traditional track and put a lot of money into qualified plans, but want to retire before 59 and a half, what would you suggest we do with that money to create income? Okay. Mm, it's a tricky situation. Well, it, it is tricky um, because, and maybe I'll just clarify what's tricky about it. Uh, if you have all your money in the, in the qualified plans and you're ready to access it before 59 and a half, then 
and, and if I'm just taking regular distributions out of my IRA 401k, 403b uh, type of qualified plans, then in addition to paying the regular income tax on it, there's an additional 10% penalty. Once right. I get past 59 and a half, I still pay the tax on it, but I don't have that additional 10% penalty. So obviously people already hate the idea of paying the tax. So the extra penalty is even more painful. So let's, let's try to avoid that. So even within that qualified money, there is what's called the 72 T which basically says if, if you're going to, if you want to retire early, take money out of those qualified plans and you're going to do it for multiple years in a row, usually it's a five year type of plan. Then you can take money out of those accounts, uh, without paying the 10% penalty, if you follow the rules of the 72T. Now, I will say this, the 72T is going to, to allow you to take, you know, three, three and a half percent, something like that out of your account. So it's, depending on how much you have in there, it may not be very meaningful. So, but but it can help, right? If, if you have that and you have other sources of income, then that could help. Okay, so that's part one. Yeah, of the I think answer. I think the point that you're that you're making is just that it sounds really cool to say, hey, as long as I take out you know five even distributions, then I then I can take it out before seventy or before fifty nine and a half. Hmm. And the reality is, is that when we've executed these, it it just always is much less than the person is hoping for, expecting, mm -hmm. and so if you're if that's the plan then just go in doing the calculations on the front end to determine whether that's really viable yeah yeah and and maybe at, at the very least whatever that is great you know you use that to help but again if that's the only source you were hoping to use then then it just may not be that helpful um now the the next part of the answer to my question is is a lot of times when we plan retirement income not only for for these kind of early retirees but but across the board We'll often implement a, a strategy we call income now, income later, meaning I have uh, I've built up multiple assets. I have different ways that I can create that income in retirement. So we're just going to order the the taking of the income and, and where I take it from out of the non-qualified assets first, or maybe even even more uh, appropriately using those assets to create passive streams of income from the, the non-qualified uh, assets to replace my working income and just realizing that I'm going to delay taking any money out of those qualified plans until I do get past age 59 and a half. And it makes more sense to, to then start taking the income from there. Both of those things are true, Rod. The thing that's coming to my mind um, is that you can also do a Roth conversion. Yeah. And the value in a Roth conversion is that you're in some ways able to, well, okay, so I, I say you can do the Roth conversion and you can, and yet there's still you know, planning that has to be done because you can't take it out immediately. So let's go mm -hmm. through what that looks like. Um, if I know that this is coming up, let's say that I'm 42 years old and I'm seeing that, okay, I put a, I keep putting $150,000, $200,000 in my defined benefit plan or you know, something like that, and I'm, I'm building up significant assets there, and it's just getting a little bit skiwampus. Well, in that situation, you know, you'll probably want to start doing 
some converting because in the Roth conversion situation, I could move the money over without paying the 10% tax penalty. But in order to get to that money, I have to let it sit in there for five years. The rule with a Roth is that I can take my contribution back out. Um, I can't take the interest before 59 and a half, but I can take my own contribution or my basis uh, with the caveat that it has to have been in there for five years. That was an excellent question. Thank you so much, Mark, uh, for sending it in. Our next question, Rod, also for you. Mm-hmm. He says, I say he says, Rod, this is this question is attributed to <laughs> Rod Zabriskie. Yeah. Rod, maybe okay. you need to give me some context for why you're asking questions now. Yeah. Okay. So this is one that came from a lot of people. And I guess I could have gone back and just found an instance where someone asked it and attributed it to them. But we've had it asked a lot over the last two months. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's happened a lot. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. So, with interest rates going up, I'm being charged more on my policy loans than I was last year. Does it still make sense to use the investment optimizer strategy, or do I need to wait until interest rates go down again? Okay, Rod, yeah. give us your input. Give us the wisdom on this because you're right. This is a, um, a hot topic question right now yeah. for good reason. Well, and, and for the last, what, 13, 14 years, interest rates with these these policy loans especially has been at its floor. In other words, yeah. the insurance companies have said, hey, uh, we don't, the interest rate that we charge on loans has a, a minimum amount and it's always 1% higher than the guaranteed interest rate of the policy. So if you had one of the older policies pre, prior to 2022, you had a 4% guaranteed interest rate on your on your policy. Therefore, your interest rate, your minimum interest rate on the policy loan was 5%. If you started one last year where your your uh, interest rate, your guaranteed interest rate was 3%, then your minimum loan rate was 4%, okay? But either way, whether you were at the minimum four, minimum five, it doesn't matter because now you're paying higher because interest rates went up. And, and this really, I think the big catalyst for this was... Uh, one of the primary companies that we use, Penn Mutual, sent a letter out uh, at the beginning of December where they said, hey, as of January 1, we're going to increase our loan rate to 5.7%. No matter where you are now, you're going to be paying a new rate of 5.7% starting January 1. So people say, well, okay, great. If I was paying this lower rate and now I'm going to pay higher, now what? Does it still make sense to take to, to use the investment optimizer strategy? And my answer to that is it doesn't change anything as it relates to the strategy. Obviously, if I'm paying more interest, that that is a change. So I'm not, I don't want to lim- eliminate the or, or diminish the concern. But as it relates to taking a loan against my policy to go out and invest, and I'm creating a 10, 15, 20, 25% return with what I'm investing in, well, that doesn't change anything as it relates to the the benefit of using the strategy. So that's that's part one of my answer. The second thing is that, especially as it relates to a company like Penn Mutual, that's direct recognition, the higher uh, as the interest rate on that I'm paying on my policy goes up, the interest that I'm earning on that portion of my cash value that's collateralizing the loan went up as well. So okay, the, this is important, Rod. This one I think is the most the most critical part, what you're saying here is that it's not just that the loan rate's going up. 
Mm -hmm. that's what it feels like. That's what people they're seeing a letter that says, hey, this loan rate that was five is up to five point seven. That feels gross. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. Right. Nobody wants to pay more interest, even though yep. we all understand why it's happening. But but what you're saying here is that simultaneously and because of the, this concept of direct recognition, which, again, part of it, we probably will have to get into a broader discussion on direct and non-direct. And, and I'm sure we have. Mm -hmm. But the point here is really just to say that it's really critical to understand that you're getting more interest at the same time that you're paying it. It's not just mm -hmm. one sided. Yeah. And and maybe to take it from another angle as well, we have people who have been using cash value lines of credit because a year ago, instead of paying the 5% interest on their loan, they could use a, a bank for that line of credit, still posting their cash value as collateral, but then accessing it through the line of credit with the bank. And they were able to get a three, three and a quarter percent interest rate on their loan. Even better, right? Well, that's yeah. obviously changed as well. Those interest rates have gone up. So then people say, well, when does it make sense for me to, uh, or does it make sense for me to keep the cash value line of credit with the bank and, and, or should I move it back to with the insurance company? And here's our, our kind of rule of thumb on that. If you're, if the loan rate that you're paying with the bank goes higher than 6.4%, then it makes sense to move it back to the policy loan with Penn Mutual because of that combination between the, the difference in interest rates obviously matters, but then also that direct recognition because you can then earn higher returns in the policy by having the loan now compared to where it was before. So Rod, what's the, what's the importance of that 6.4? How did we get to that number? Yeah, great question. Okay. So in the Penn Mutual policy, the direct recognition says that for the first 10 years, whatever interest rate you're paying on the loan. So in this case, we were paying 5%. Mm -hmm. The interest you're earning on the collateralized portion of your cash value is 65 basis points less than that. So if I'm paying five, I'm earning 4.35. If I'm paying 5.7, I'm earning 5.05. The dividend rate that they're paying currently is 5.75. Okay. So the, mm -hmm. I got to the 6.4 by basically saying if my if my difference in what I'm paying in the interest rate is 65 basis points anyway, so I'm paying mm. 6.4 at the bank and earning 5.75 with the with my dividend rate at the, with the insurance company, that's the 65 basis point difference. But if now I'm paying instead of 6.4, I'm paying 6.5, but I'm earning 5.75, well, I might as well move it back to Penn Mutual, pay 6.5 and earn... 65 basis points less than that, right? Yep, that makes sense. And can I just add this caveat? Um, because there will be people in this situation as well. If you are in a more mature policy past 10 years, mm -hmm. then that might look a little, that would look different because uh, in that situation, they don't have that 0.65% or that 65 basis point difference. Mm -hmm. It's just a true, what we call wash loan at that point. Yeah. Yeah, if you're paying five on your loan rate, you know, you're earning five. If you're paying 5.7, yep. you're earning 5.7. And that, again, is one of the benefits for continuing to use the strategy longer term. It becomes even more attractive as time goes on. Okay. Um, excellent, Rod. Is there anything else you wanted to hit on before 
we move on to our last question? Yeah, maybe one last thought, and that is just okay. that there are more differences between using the cash value line of credit versus the the policy loan with the insurance company. So I'm I'm speaking solely from the standpoint of interest rates. If that's the driving force and you always want to be getting the best interest rate, regardless of what those other differences could be between the two, then that 6.4% holds true. Uh, however, if there are reasons why you think, well, keeping the cash by line of credit still makes sense because of these other benefits that come with it, then I can totally support that. And, and we have people who are doing that. So just wanted to clarify that as well. Okay. Excellent, Rodney. Thank you um, for everybody who's been asking that question. That's obviously one that is incredibly relevant as well. So, Rod, we have our 15th and final question. This one's from Kerrigan Call, but this is a recorded question. So why don't you cue it up for us? Okay. Are you hearing the question? No, nope, just, nope. just the music. It was. I was like, "Wow, we're getting quite an intro on this one." The, the text <laughs> was showing like he was at, like it was going, but he wasn't. Oh, that is so. I may weird. just have to go the one without the music. Sorry. To okay, say well, that's it. fine. That's fine. No music is fine. Okay. All right, here we go. Okay. Yo, Christian and Rod, how's your world going, guys? Hey, what do you do when you have a CEO that is maxed out on their 401k, their deferred comp, their health savings account? They don't want to put money into the stock market right now or annuities. But I've recommended the annuities. But anyway, where do you guys kind of see for the future person putting their money? Appreciate it. Thanks. Mm -mm. Okay, that's a good question. A good um, couple of questions. But can I just ask you a question first rod okay did you pay kerrigan to ask us this question did you like <laughs> send him a hundred dollar bill and be like hey can you cue this question up so we can finish our podcast on a high note no so um i've never talked with kerrigan before and uh <laughs> so okay i'm gonna verify that this is no i'm just kidding <laughs> kerrigan thank you for the question um we have a we have some thoughts on this so so first of all um, it's a good position to be in if you've, you know, basically filled all of your qualified plans and things like that and still have money that's left over. So that's a positive thing, but maybe I would back up even further and say this, like before we would recommend this CEO do maxing out their 401k and health savings account and other qualified plans, we'd probably go further back and suggest that they do other things in addition to it. Now, I will say this, I st I, and I, I maintain that there are, is a place, a valuable place for qualified money. I think that um, high-income earners can get value by, you know, putting it, money in a defined benefit plan for 10 years or something like that. Uh, so there's some positive things there, but I would say the first thing is, don't max out all of your qualified money. Uh, because if you believe like most people do that taxes are more likely to go up than down in the future or stay the same, if we, if we feel like that's true, then the future from a tax standpoint 
doesn't look so rosy. Um, so anyway, that's my first thought. Um, okay, so let me go back to... He also said the stock market and or annuities. Okay, so stock market and annuities. I, As I always say, I still think there's a place for most of these things. Annuities have value. The stock market has value. Um, but what we would probably recommend someone doing is first getting involved with and starting to invest in the alternative space. So that means funding the investment optimizer, right? And getting uh, my opportunity fund built up so that I can start investing in other types of investments that aren't qualified plan type of things, real estate, um, business, all of the variety of things that we so often talk about. Um, and then, Rod, if I was looking specifically for um, income strategies, that's probably the only time I would cons I would like really consider annuities. Now, here's the good news. Annuity interest rates are going up and they're looking a lot more attractive. Obviously, interest rates across the board are going up. And so from an annuity standpoint, there's a lot more opportunity coming out of the annuity world than there has been in the past. And so there's probably a little bit more reason to at least look at or consider that. But I wouldn't seriously consider using an annuity unless it was very specifically part of an income, a retirement income strategy. Um, okay, Rod, did I miss anything? I have a, a thought maybe. Please. My assumption that they're, for the reason they're using the, all the, the deferred comp and the qualified plans, the health savings account is because they're looking for tax deductions. And okay. maybe to, yeah, to draw point. a line between that and what you talked about is that's one of the things that we like about the alternative investing space is that we can create so many tax deductions without getting in bed with the IRS, right? And forever yeah. applying, you know, playing by their rules as it relates to the qualified plans. In and and part of it is actually included here, including limit limitations on how much you can put into it. Like they're saying, hey, hit this is all great and dandy, but you can't put very much into it. Well, yeah, there's no limit on how much you can put into an investment optimizer policy and then go out and invest in the real estate and the businesses and the and the uh, funds and notes and all those kinds of things. Right. So if you look at it and you kind of break down, so let's just say um, Kerrigan, as they were thinking about this, really was focused on where do I maximize my tax benefits? Well, mm. if that's the case, I, I basically outlined it without highlighting the tax perspective or the tax part of it, because if I'm putting money into a life insurance policy, like we've talked about, right? In that situation, that money looks, feels, and acts just like a Roth IRA because I'm going to take it out on a loan basis or I'm going to take out my basis. But one way or the other, there's no reason why I should ever have to pay tax. So basically that ends up being a tax-free income vehicle um, and a tax-free pass-through vehicle. And then, of course, you take it to the next level and you're talking about things like real estate depreciation, bonus depreciation, cost segregation, um, all of the these various things that come into play. And for most people have a much more meaningful tax implication than simply deferring, you know, $100,000 into um, a deferred comp plan. So anyway, those are some, but this is a really great question though. So it's a question that, you know, we frequently get. Kerrigan, we appreciate you sending it in. 
Rod, is there any final thoughts that you want to hit on before we wrap things up for today? Well, I think I think what it highlights is what drives us in a lot of the content that we put out there, including what the conversations we have in the podcast, but also including some things we've done recently, like with our high income money hacks and, and even the, the curated curriculum that we've put together on, you know, if someone takes our, our investor quiz and, and gets that curated curriculum, because it's, it's pointing people in the direction of things that allow us to answer questions like this um, with, you know, more than a, you know, three or four minute uh, soundbite uh, to where we can really build out the the case for the alternative investment world, why it makes sense to do that and how someone can go about capturing those tax benefits and additional opportunities as it relates to, to capturing returns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. I got so excited about the question. I just like forgot where to go. So that, but that is a great point, right? The the high income money hacks is really our response to this question. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's various strategies that high income earners can utilize to obviously create returns, but also um, be smart across the board. And and tax components or, or the tax component is a critical piece of that since you know it's our biggest cost so anyway check out the high income money acts there's a bunch of different um, things that we hit on from a tax perspective that will help uh okay rob this was fun thanks everybody who participated and sent in questions whether it was audio or written we are super appreciative and thanks for everybody else who listened to us and we will see you next week on the money insights podcast thank you for listening to the money insights podcast To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.